All right, well, this morning you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 2. Matthew chapter 2. morning we want to look at the three kings and uh, how to be wise, not a wise guy, but a wise man or a wise woman. And uh, so I want to read this uh, passage for us out of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men... From the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you, for, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I may too come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went from before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You know, this time of year is always an exciting time of year. It's a time of year where... People focus on a lot of different things, whether it be family and food and fellowship and gifts and and, uh, all sorts of things, shopping. Reminded of an illustration of Howard Hughes, who was a very rich individual, very wealthy individual, and he actually owned uh, several casinos in Las Vegas down on the Strip. And when Howard Hughes eventually died... Um, the public relations director for Howard Hughes' company asked all the casino managers just for a moment of silence. They were to shut everything down on the casino floor just out of respect for Howard Hughes. And so the time came when they were going to honor Howard Hughes with this moment of silence and the message went out over all the public address systems, and for a brief moment, all the the noise of the casinos fell silent. 
The slot machines started, stopped working. Everybody just stood there. Housewives stood there with their little cup of coins, <laughs> waiting for the moment to be over. At the, the tables, the card tables, everything was ceased. The dice stopped rolling. Finally, the, the pit boss looked at his watch, the man that was in charge of the casino, and he leaned forward and he whispered to the man ready to roll the dice, Okay, roll the dice. He's had his minute. <laughs> Some respect, huh? You know, sometimes I feel that illustration depicts us a lot of times at Christmas. We get so busy with the Christmas season we're all prone to give our kind of shallow respect to the Lord, show up to church, maybe even do the Christmas Eve service. But we get caught up in all the rush of the shopping, sending out Christmas cards, decorating, maybe traveling, entertaining guests. In the midst of all that, we kind of sneak out to church somehow and we give thanks. Um, and then we slip right back into all of our craziness. And uh, making the lists and making sure that everything's done. And we kind of have that attitude, well, the Lord had his minute. <laughs> when you stop and you think about it, the sovereign God of the universe deserves a little more than just a minute. Um, he deserves to reign as your Lord. He deserves to reign as your king. Not just for one minute out of respect, maybe around the Christmas season, but every minute of the day. These wise men that we're going to look at this morning, these magi as they were known, um, they can really teach us some significant things, how to be wise men or wise women. You know, that word wise can be used in a derogatory way too, right? You run into somebody who's a smart aleck, what do you do? You call him, hey, you're a wise guy. You know, that's, that's not the, the idea here. These were truly men of wisdom. Uh, well, who were they? Who were these wise men? We don't know a lot about them, to be honest with you, but some people say, well, there was three of them. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that there was three. The Bible doesn't tell us how many there were. The Bible says that there were three gifts, but it doesn't tell us how many wise men there were. There could have been 10, there could have been 20, who knows. Um, doesn't even say they rode on camels. Doesn't say that. Um, it doesn't tell us that they visited Jesus in a manger. In front of our house we have a little nativity scene. And I couldn't help but, as I drove away this morning, thinking of this message, looked up the nativity scene, and three of the little figures are wise men. <laughs> and they weren't at the manger, as we're going to find out. Because it says they went into the house. And so we don't know a whole lot about these, but contrary to the song that we sing, We Three Kings of Orient Are, um, they probably weren't even kings. And there may not have been three of them, as I said. Um, and so we don't know necessarily what country they came from. It says they came from the east, but we don't know exactly. Some people, some commentators say they may have traveled eight to 900 miles to see the Christ. Can you imagine traveling eight to 900 miles back then? It wasn't like you could go to, you know, kayak and buy a ticket and uh, get on the next flight. 
I mean, it involved a lot of effort. And they were obviously familiar with some of the scriptures because they quote to Herod a section of scripture and it's of a prophet, Daniel. And it tells about the, the Christ being born and where he's going to be born. But they were probably most likely of a very prominent class of people who were royal advisors in somewhere like Persia or modern-day Iran. And they most likely studied astronomy, they studied astrology, they studied science, they studied religious matters. They were very educated men. These weren't the shepherds. These were wise men. And in the book of Daniel, the word is used of a class of men who interpreted dreams and divine messages to the king. They were known as wise men or magi. So perhaps maybe they heard about the Messiah from the Jews that had scattered throughout their country since the captivity. They may have read the prophet Daniel. He was a prominent leader in in Babylon and Persia centuries before. Well, somehow they knew they had some knowledge about the Jewish Messiah. And through this special star that was given to them, God revealed to them the Messiah's birthplace. Some commentators say, oh, this was just kind of a a star that was shooting through the sky and it just happened to be a coincidence. I don't believe that. I believe it was supernaturally placed there by God. And history actually tells us that there was such a phenomenon that happened. The historians call it a phenomenon. I call it a miracle. It appeared to guide them during the night as they traveled to the Christ child, much like the pillar of fire did in the Old Testament when Israel was following the Lord. But it led them right to the very house where Jesus was. Not the manger, but the house. The one thing we can say for sure about these these wise men was that they responded to the light God gave them by seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. They responded to that light. And that's a very important point that we need to understand. They were clear in their purpose. It says in verse 2 that we have come to worship him. Whether they were absolutely clear on his divine nature or not, we don't know. We don't know whether they were believers. We don't really understand It says they came and they worshipped him. They traveled quite a ways to do so. They obviously had some form of experience with the word of God. They sought out the Christ child. They recognized the worth of Christ. They humbled themselves to worship Jesus. And we find eventually they even obeyed God rather than man. Because Herod said, hey, you come back here and you tell me where he is. And they said, we're not going to do that. God told them not to do that. And they obeyed God rather than man. Now, when they showed up at the house there, they did worship Christ. They didn't give worship to Herod when they were before Herod. They didn't bow down to Herod. They didn't give Herod any gifts. So they must have known something about this newborn king. And they must have been somewhat familiar that he was the one described in Daniel as one like the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says... 
to whom was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. In dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, it says, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So they were very, they had a lot of information about who this Christ was, this Messiah was. And so we can kind of conclude that they did respond to what God gave them. In spite of a lot of obstacles, it wasn't an easy trip for them. They still sought out this newborn king, and they sought him until they found him. That's the amazing thing. And then once they found him, they actually worshipped him. I mean, I think as God's creation, we should do no less. See, sometimes people make it so easy to come to Christ. They just think, oh, you just say this little prayer, you just jump through this little hoop, and boy, now you're a Christian. Praise the Lord. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, what are you to do? You're to take up your cross. You're to die to yourself daily. You're to deny yourself. And then you can follow me. Jesus even says at one point, unless your love for me seems as hatred toward your mother and your father, your brother or sister. He's not telling you to hate your family. Jesus would never do that. But he does say, your love for your family in comparison to your love for me should almost make that love for your family seem as, as if it's hatred. That's, there's just no comparison to the love that we should have for Christ. And so when God seeks men and women, by the way, the wise respond by seeking his king. When God seeks men and women, the wise respond by seeking his king. We know who his king is. It's Christ. You hear a lot about seekers today in churches. You hear a lot about different that, that word seeker is used a lot. You have seeker services, you have seeker churches. You have people saying, well, we're a church for the unchurched. And I often say, what does that mean? How can you have a church for unchurched people? I mean, that, that redefines what the church is. The church is called, what? Together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship God, to have their sins forgiven through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's what the church is, the called out ones. The church isn't just any old buddy that comes into a building. That's not what the church is. And so today we have people <clears throat> redefining that word seeker. And they make it sound like, well, if you're not a Christian, then you, you must be a, <clears throat> a seeker. You're, you're on your way to God. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is that God, not man, begins the seeking process. It's, it all starts with God, beloved. If, if God doesn't start to seek you, you're not going to seek him. No way. We'd be greatly mistaken, both factually and theologically, if we thought that somehow these men were wise in and of themselves. That they were just intellectual guys. They were just bright guys. And somehow, in all their wisdom, they sat down one day and said, hey, you know what? Let's go find the newborn king. That's not what happened. The reason I know it's not what happened is because Romans 3.11 tells us very clearly there is none who what? 
seeks God. There's not one. All have gone astray. All have fallen short of God's glory. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Side note, start reading through the book of Romans. We're going to start that the first of the year. So you can uh, read along and study along with us. It's going to take probably several years to get through it, but we're going to be going through the book of Romans. So focus in on Romans chapter 1 and start reading that. But for right now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And he's talking really about people who come to Christ, people who come to God in faith. And he says there in verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. In other words, You weren't wise on your own. You didn't figure this out on your own. It says, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Boy, that kind of wipes out all the the top class people right there in that one sentence, those three classifications. But look at what he says in verse 27. Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose Not only what is foolish, but he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why would he do that? It tells us the very next verse. Look at verse 29. It says, so that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. See, there's not going to be any boasting in heaven. There's not going to be people in heaven saying, hey, how'd you get here? Oh, you know what? I fed the poor for 20 years, or I helped the homeless, or boy, I went to church every day. I went to church every, every Sunday. I did this. I did that. Oh, really? Is that what you did? Well, here's what I did, and you're going to be comparing notes. That's not going to happen in heaven. The only reason you're ever going to be in heaven is because of God's gracious act of salvation on you. Is God seeking you, God bringing you to faith. It's not because you were laying awake one night when you couldn't sleep and said, you know, I've been thinking about this Christianity thing. It seems like a pretty good deal. You know, you don't believe in Christ. You go to hell and you burn in in this horrible place forever, torture for your sins. Or, you know, you come to Christ and you you go to heaven. It seems like eternal bliss and, and glory forever. Your sins are forgiven. You know, nobody comes to Christ just looking at the facts going, okay, I, I guess I'll just make a rational decision here. That doesn't happen that way. We could go around the room and we could discover how different people came to Christ. And I guarantee you, you probably heard the gospel more than once. It wasn't just the first time you heard it, you just responded, wow, this is great, glorious, yes. You probably heard it a couple times, several times. And then finally, God turned the light switch on. 
Finally, God allowed your eyes to be opened. It's because God, not man, begins this seeking process. The factual reason that these wise men sought out Jesus simply was because God took the initiative by revealing to them a supernatural sign in the heavens. And they connected it with the birth of the Jewish Messiah. When you look at Matthew, theologically, when we went through the book of Matthew, we understand that Matthew is showing that through the Jews, this newborn Messiah is right there under their noses. And yet, you know what? Because of the hardness of their own hearts, they didn't want to see it. He was one of them. They didn't even, they didn't even get it. That God sent his son in the form of Christ to be their Messiah. All the religious leaders of Jesus' day were against him. And so he's showing us that this Messiah is not only the king of the Jews, but he's also showing us that he's a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy foretold, that he's also the king of nations. We'd also be mistaken if we concluded that God's using this sign in the heavens with these astrologers somehow validated the use of astrology. I heard one pastor one time say, well, you know, this kind of gives some credence to the idea of, you know, the astronomy, astrology and, you know, your horoscope and all that. If it was good enough for these guys, then that's not true. The Bible over and over and over again condemns the notion that the heavenly bodies have some power over human destinies. God and God alone is sovereign. And he's the one who spoke the universe into existence. And he's the one who has control over the human destinies. The idea that you would go to somebody and pay them money and say, now tell me my future, that's ridiculous. Nobody can do that. They can make stuff up about you. Maybe it's a coincidence it kind of lines up. Maybe even it's demonic to some form. But for the most part, we're condemned against doing anything like that. We're not supposed to do those kind of things. So just because these guys were astrologers doesn't mean that, oh, now we should go all be, you know, get into all that, that crazy stuff. He shines his light in our lives so that we can understand and respond to it. And, you know, that's what the Christmas story is all about, that God took on human flesh, as we talked about last week, so that somehow he might be able to save his people from their sins. That's what it tells us in, in Matthew one twenty one. I mean, maybe you're sitting here to get tonight, this morning, and you're saying, you know what? Well, that's all in good. That's great. Good news. Uh, that we don't and we cannot seek God until he first seeks us. But what if, it, what if he, he hasn't sought me yet? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do in the meantime? Just go out and stare at the night sky and wait for some star to appear? You know, what are you talking about? The fact is, right now you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing the truth of God's word. That shows you the mere fact that you're in this building says that, you know what? God is seeking you. God desires your salvation. Maybe you don't all understand it yet. Maybe you haven't discerned that yet. But God sought men through a miraculous sign here in the sky. 
Think how much more miraculous it is when he seeks a lost person through the preaching of, of God's word. See, the power is in the word of God. The power is not in my words. The power is not in any pastor's words. The power is in the word of God. That's what affects change in people's hearts. And it sounds kind of old-fashioned that you would come to a place, sit in a room for 30, 40 minutes, and hear somebody get up and and talk about God, and, and you don't get to ask questions, you don't get to do anything, but sit there and listen to this person ramble on for 40 minutes. And there's some churches that don't do that anymore. <laughs> nah, that's old-fashioned. We're not going to have preaching anymore. We're going to have some skits, and we're going to have lots more music, and we'll have different things going on so that people don't get bored. Well, they've missed the whole point. The reason that we present the Word of God, the reason that we preach the Word of God is for the simple fact that God promises to bless it. That's the way He affects change in people's hearts and in people's minds. That in and of itself is kind of odd in the society in which we live, but that's what God says. And so you're hearing the word of God preached, and you know what? That means that God is seeking you. And so the crucial question really becomes this. How are you responding to God seeking you? What's your response? The Bible says in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, that the, ref- the fool responds to that seeking God by turning inward and saying, oh, you know what, I don't even believe there is a God. I don't believe there's a God. That's what the fool does. But the second point here, wise men and women respond to God seeking them by what? By seeking Jesus as their king. That's the, the, the next step. See, God sought these wise men, but they had no... Uh, way to respond other than by seeking his king. It wasn't an easy process for them, clearly. Several things could have hindered them from seeking and finding the Savior as, as it is with anybody. One of the things, first of all, wise men seek Jesus as king in spite of difficulties in the process. Like I said, it's not always easy to come to Christ. It's not just you wake up and you say a prayer and that's it. And these wise men are an example of that. These wise men had to go on this long, difficult, hundreds of miles, this journey they went on. I mean, we don't even get that in our day of of, of jet travel and, and, you know, high-speed freeways and all this stuff. I mean, you know, we can get on a plane here in San Francisco and be you know, all the way around the world in less than 24 hours if we want to. That's amazing. Back then, they didn't have that privilege. It took them weeks. It took them sometimes months to travel places. And these wise men, these magi, were probably pretty well-to-do men. They were used to living in the, the palaces and comfortable settings. And you know what? They gave all that up to go on this road trip to go find this baby Jesus somewhere. You know, they couldn't pull into a hotel at night and get out of the frigid air. No, they had to, they had to deal with that. They were in constant threat of, obviously, they were well-to-do of being robbed. There was robbers on the road all over the place over there. And so when they finally get to Jerusalem... They even had troubles getting to the right place. 
I mean, they could have any time in their trip said, you know what, what's the use? We're following this crazy light, and we're not getting anywhere. We haven't found this thing we're looking for yet. What was in it for them? Why should they go through all the, the hassle? I mean, were they looking for this Christ child to solve some personal problem? Maybe they could get a, a, a position in his new kingdom. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Well, that couldn't have been true because they couldn't even talk with this king. He didn't have to talk yet. It's probably one less than two years of age when they arrived. So they couldn't have a conversation with him. And it'd be like 30 years before he even began his public ministry. So there wasn't really a whole lot in it for them. They didn't say to themselves, well, we've seen his star in the east and we've come to get something. (laughs) That wasn't the idea. The point is simply this. When God seeks you, you should do everything it takes to seek him. Whatever the hassles are. Whatever the difficulties, and it's simply because of this, he alone is the living God and is worth all the trouble, if you find him. I remember when I was seeking God, and I would start reading the Old Testament, and I'd get to Genesis and some of those chapters, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and I'd just close it and go, man, this is a crazy book. I don't even can't even pronounce these names. What's the word begat mean anyway? You know, I'd I just put it aside, and then God would draw my heart back to it, and I'd start trying to read it again, because I thought you had to read it from the beginning to the end. That's how you read any book, and I thought the Bible was the same kind of book. And I remember getting frustrated. And it wasn't until, you know, months after that whole, whole process that God finally opened my eyes. And then once I found Christ, I, I remember thinking, man, I would have done anything to have this. I'll follow him, no matter what. See, if you seek God and you seek Christ with this kind of attitude that says, you know what, I'll follow him if he makes my life go better. I'll follow him if something somehow there's something in it for me. Sometimes I think we think of God as some kind of divine Santa Claus that we, you know, or some genie. We go up and we rub the bottle and, okay, I want this. That's not what God is. He's the living God. And no doubt these wise men who sought him out, their life got more difficult when they began to seek Jesus as king. And I'm just here to tell you, you know what, if you haven't come into relationship with Christ yet and you're in that seeking stage, you know that God is seeking you and, and you're, you're in turn trying to seek him, don't think it's going to be easy. It's not. The Bible says that broad is the way that leads to destruction, to hell. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And then it says this, and few are those that find it. So when you're given truth, when someone points you in the right direction, and they're giving you the truth of the word of God, you better latch on to it, and you better really start to, to pray about what you're hearing and what you're understanding. And asking God to say, you know what, if this is true, if what this person is telling me is true, make it real to me. Show me what the next step is. Help me in my unbelief. God will answer that prayer. He clearly will. And so these wise men sought Jesus as king in spite of the difficulty of the process. The second thing these guys did is they 
sought Jesus as king in spite of the disinterest of others. See, sometimes people aren't interested in the same thing you're interested in. Some of you have kids, know what I'm talking about. Or grandkids. Right? They start talking about certain things and sometimes I have the slightest idea what they're talking about. I go, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know, the, the, the Ninjago set that has the copter and, and they start talking, I don't know what you're talking about. It's funny. But to them, man, this is like a life or death issue. They want you to know more information about it. You have no clue. You're almost disinterested. I mean, can you imagine how these Gentile wise men felt? Think about it. They had traveled for weeks, if not months. Difficult trip to worship this newborn king of the Jews. They finally get there. They finally get to the Jerusalem capital where this king would someday reign. Expecting the the city just to be, wow, they're going to be so excited over the birth of this new baby, this new king of the Jews. They're just going to be, man, they're going to be, just everything's going to be going crazy there. And they began to ask around, hey, where, where is he? Where is this newborn child? You know, we, we saw his star in the east, and it led us to this place. Maybe they went up to one of the street vendors who answered back, and I, what are you talking about? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't heard anything about a king. You want to buy some of my stuff, though? I'll sell you some stuff. You look like pretty wealthy guys, but I don't know what you're talking about as far as a king goes. And maybe they asked other people on the streets, where's your newborn king? And people just looked at him as, what? What are you talking about? Shrugs on their shoulders. So they think, well, you know what? We must be asking the wrong people. These people don't have a clue. So they leave the street people and they go over to the temple and they begin to ask some of the religious leaders. Where's your king? You Jewish leaders, where's your king at? And the rabbis look at each other and go, what are you talking about? We don't know anything about a king. The only king we know about is Herod. His palace is over there. I mean, it would be as if someone from a foreign country traveled all the distance to come to the Bay Area. And you ran into them on the street in San Francisco. And they said, you know what, we spent all this money, we brought our family for Christmas, and the one thing we want to see, the reason we came to San Francisco, is we wanted to see the Golden Gate Bridge. And the person goes, the what? The Golden Gate Bridge. What's that? Wait a minute, you live in San Francisco and you don't know what the Golden Gate Bridge is? You can't even point where it's at? I never heard of it. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, that's how crazy this is. That's what the wise men were thinking. Everybody will know about this Christ child. Nobody knew. And then when Herod heard that there might be a newborn king of the Jews, he was not disinterested, was he? He was very much interested. It says in verse 3, of 
of, of Matthew 2 there that he was very interested. As a matter of fact, it says that he was troubled. <laughs> That's how interested Herod was. I mean, this guy was a sick puppy, Herod. He was just one sick individual. That's why it says, in all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Because they knew that if Herod was troubled, something's going to happen. Because when you get Herod troubled, people start to lose their heads, if you know what I'm talking about. And he was troubled because he was such a suspicious leader. He was so suspicious. He was so neurotic. He was a tyrant. And you know what? This guy would eliminate anybody who had even the remotest chance of challenging his rule. Didn't matter who it was. Think about this. By the time Herod died, he had murdered his brother-in-law. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered his wife. He murdered three of his sons. Not to mention all those male babies in Bethlehem that were put to death. Plus, he murdered a lot of other people. You can understand why all Jerusalem gets troubled when Herod gets troubled, right? Because he just starts whacking people. You could be next. But none of these religious leaders that the, the wise men went to had any information. None of the religious leaders get troubled enough about this newborn king to ask the Magi, well, wait, we'll follow you. Where are you going? If this is our new king, we should know him. No, they were disinterested. They didn't care. They could give the right biblical answers about the Messiah's birthplace. They knew the scriptures. They taught in the temple. They understood all that, but they weren't interested They weren't interested in taking a five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see their newborn king. That's how much they weren't interested. Pretty sad. They probably looked at these wise men as a bunch of fanatical idiots that traveled all this distance to see a baby. Are you kidding me? Why would you do that? But in spite of their indifference of those who should have been most excited, it was their king, the Magi went along to Bethlehem to worship the newborn king. See, the disinterest of others, let me tell you this, can hinder you from seeking the Lord Jesus as your king. It can hinder you. The worst kind of disinterest comes from the religious crowd (laughs) who know about the king. They know about Jesus but they haven't submitted their lives to his rule. They find it an interesting academic exercise to study their Bible, but somehow it never works its way to their heart, and therefore it never confronts their pride or their selfishness. Maybe they look at you as a fanatic because you're willing to seek the Savior no matter what the cost. The reason it They don't like that as it threatens their lukewarmness. It it threatens who they are. Don't let the disinterest of others hinder you from seeking him. Thirdly here, the wise men 
sought the king in spite of their difficulties, in spite of the disinterest of others, and also the wise men sought Jesus as king in spite of disappointments. Once again, think about it. You put yourself in their shoes, they arrive they, 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 from a, a, a land where they used to advise kings, the kings of Persia. They're living in royal settings. They're eating royal food. And after seeing this, this star of the newborn king of the Jews, they start this long journey. And they must have had some expectations. Usually when you go on a trip, you have some expectations, right? About what you're going to find and, and when you're going to get there. I mean, think about it. Not every king has his own star leading people to him. So they probably thought in their heart, man, this is going to be a big deal. This is, this is something to, worth going to. They had some expectations what they would find once they got there. Well, they went to Herod's palace, but the newborn king wasn't there. Maybe they thought he's in one of the, the king's vacation homes. Maybe they thought, ah, oh, he's surrounded with gold and he's weighed, being waited on by attendants. He's a king, after all. Maybe they thought they could stay as one of the guests with the king in the, in the, on the grounds of, the, of the, the royal palace there. But look at what they found. This is so interesting in verse 11. Matthew 2, 11. What did they find? It says, they came into the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. That's why we know they didn't go to the manger. They went to the house. Mary and Joseph had moved into a more permanent living quarters. I mean, you maybe have a baby in a stable or a manger, but you probably don't want to raise your baby in a manger. So they moved into a house. Joseph maybe found some work and Earned some money, and maybe he had some saved, and they found a rental. But it was a common house. It wasn't some big palace. Because these are common working class parents. This is a common looking child. There was no fancy robes on Jesus. There was no attendance around him. There was no palace. And yet, even with that setting, it says when the wise men came, what did they do? It says, they fell down and what? They worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. I don't know about you, but that would take some faith. If I traveled eight to 900 miles on foot to see this king of the Jews and ended up in some common house with some common people and the baby that looked common. I mean, there was no glowing halo around the little baby Jesus' head like we see in all the pictures. Very common setting. And it's interesting that it says here, they fell down and worshipped Mary? Oh no, it doesn't say that, does it? No, they left that out. It says, no, they fell down and worshipped him, the Christ child. There's no place in the Bible, as an ex-Catholic, I can tell you this, where it tells us to worship Mary. It just doesn't tell us that. Matter of fact, it tells us just the opposite. Don't worship anybody but God. Don't worship anybody but Christ. But even with that being said, this took some faith. They'd been to Herod's palace. They just came from there and they saw all the splendor there. But they didn't bow down and worship. 
But here in this common setting, they find this common couple with their common child. He didn't, Jesus, little baby Jesus didn't pop out of the, you know, the, the waddling clothes there in his mother's arms and start doing miracles and go, oh, let me put you on a show for you, wise man. I know you traveled along. No, he didn't do that. And yet they fell before him. There was no angels overhead. And they worshipped him. And they presented him with their treasures. See, even if they were disappointed in what they found, here's the point. It, it didn't keep them from bowing their head before Jesus as their king. Sometimes people want to come to Christ for all these felt needs. They want Jesus to fix their family. They want Jesus to fix their finances. They want Jesus to fix their employment and fix this and fix that. And if Jesus would just do this, then I'll come. And sometimes, to be honest with you, when you come to Jesus, things don't get easier. They get harder. They get more difficult. But you know what? You have Christ. Your sins are forgiven. After you're a, a, a Christian, the worst possible thing that could happen to you here on earth is that you die. <laughs> and if you die, what happens? You go right to heaven. You don't have to pass go, collect 200 bucks. You don't have to do, You go right to heaven in the presence of your Lord and Savior. That's why we're not to fear death. You might fear the process of dying. I mean, I don't fear death, but I don't like to think about how I might have to die one day. That's not fun. But you know what? Even with that being said, I know God's going to get me through it. I've been by the bedside of many people who have died. Some of them just fallen asleep. Others have struggled to stay alive in, boy, days. It's a horrible experience. But you know what? When you know Christ, it doesn't matter what the experience is, even is how you die. The minute you're, you give your last breath, you're in the presence of your Lord and Savior. And you're made whole. I mean, what a wonderful thing. Sometimes we, we want to find Jesus the way we want to find him, and sometimes that doesn't work out that way. You may not find King Jesus to be all that you expected. You may think he's going to solve all your problems right overnight. You may have more problems than you know what to do with after you come to Christ. But you know what? The one who learns from these wise men can look beyond those disappointments. And you can bow your heart and, your, and your, your need before Jesus as your king with eyes of faith, realizing that, you know what? This, this word is true. Wise men and women seek Jesus as king in spite of their difficulties, in spite of the disinterest of others, in spite of disappointment. The last thing here, wise men seek Jesus as king in spite of their own dignity. In spite of their own dignity. See, these magi were important people back home. They, they brushed up against kings and rulers. They were like cabinet members. When you think of, of our government, they had wealth, they had influence. And yet here we find them bowing down to the floor, a dirt floor no less, in this, this modest home in Bethlehem to worship this little Jewish baby, proclaiming him as their sovereign king look at verse 10 because it tells us when they saw the star as they left jerusalem bound for bethlehem it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy 
In other words, Matthew there, in that one sentence, he piles up these superlatives to let us know that these guys were just a little bit excited, okay? And when they got to the house, they weren't hindered by their own dignity. They didn't say, oh, a dirty floor, we can't bow down, we're above that. No. They said, you know what? We're going to set our dignity, our pride aside, and we're going to worship the Lord Jesus as he deserves to be worshipped. I mean, you never find proud Herod bowing down in the dust, except maybe before Caesar, save his own neck. The scribes in Jerusalem would know nothing about this abandonment and worship. They only bowed their heads when it was proper in the temple in front of others so that they could look at him and say, oh, look at how religious that person is. He's bowing his head in prayer. These magi, these majestic men, bowed to worship this infant whom they confessed as their king. Even though he wasn't even acknowledged by his own people. See, the good news, beloved, is we no longer worship Jesus as a babe in Bethlehem in a manger. We, we worship him as the risen, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And one day he's going to be returning in might and majesty, for, in, in majesty forever, to reign forever. But see, if our dignity, if our pride hinders that, hinders us bowing our knee, he won't come back as our Savior, he'll come back as our judge. People ask themselves, well, what are, what are people going to think if I get carried away and kind of give myself over to this Jesus thing. What are people going to think? It doesn't matter what people are going to think. People might think I'm some religious fanatic. You're not going to be a religious fanatic. Might be a little excited to find eternal life, to find a, a savior that forgives your sin. See, the Herod and the Jewish leaders, they kept their dignity, but they, mess, they, they missed their, their king. The Magi lost their dignity, but they gained Jesus as their king. It says after they departed, after they gave him the gifts, verse 12, it says they departed for their own country. It's interesting, they didn't want to set up a shrine there, <laughs> you know, and charge people, hey, come and see the newborn king. Only a couple dollars you can get inside. No, they didn't do that. They didn't write a book about their trip. I was talking to my grandson about the kid that wrote the book Going to Heaven the other day. You know, he, they didn't write a book. They didn't do that. They quietly returned home and they went on with their lives. But you know what? Somehow there were different men now. They were men who by faith had seen the king and they worshipped him. See, that's what Christ wants from us this Christmas. He wants us to respond to his initiative, to him sending his son he wants us to respond by seeking Jesus as our king. And once we find him, he wants us to worship him. Then he wants us to return to our homes, to our world, as different people, as, as people who live under a different rule, live under the sovereignty of the king. There's three types of people here in this story. First of all, there's Herod, who hear of Jesus, and yet they're hostile toward him. They, they view Jesus as a threat. They want to eliminate him. I don't think there's anybody here this morning, hopefully, like that. 
Second group of people is the Jewish priests and the scribes, and they know all about Jesus. They could tell you everything about him, but they don't know him. They're indifferent toward him. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a lot of biblical knowledge, but you don't want to go out of your way to seek him. Don't be like them. And then you had the, the wise men, the last people who responded to the light that had been given to them. And when they found the Savior, it says that they bowed down to the earth and they worshipped him. Maybe you're not in that third group, but you'd like to be. What should you do? There's an 18th century devotional writer named William Law, and he wrote this. He gives us the answer. He says, when the first spark of a desire after God arrives in your soul, cherish it with all your care. Give all your heart unto it. Follow it as gladly as the wise men of the east followed the star from the heaven that appeared to them. It will do for you as the star did for them. It will lead you to the birth of Christ. Not in a stable at Bethlehem of Judea, but to the birth of Jesus in your own soul. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of these wise men, these magi who traveled all this distance to seek out the Savior, to seek out the King. And Lord, by faith, they worshiped him, even though it didn't seem like an appropriate venue for a newborn king to be in. They knew that God had directed them there. I know that there's people here, even here this morning in this auditorium, who realize that God is working in their lives. That God is seeking them. They're hearing truth week after week. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that work of, of drawing them into your presence. Help them to set aside their dignity, their pride, to embrace the Savior as the only answer for life's problems. You can search after wealth and health and prosperity and all that stuff. That's not going to take you to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them unto yourself. I pray for us as believers, Lord, that we would continue to remind ourselves this time of the year as we spend it with family and friends this next week. Lord, we ask that you would remind us that the ultimate gift to us is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we'd be reminded of your grace in drawing us into you, into a relationship with you. That it's not of works, lest we should boast, but it's by your grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. For that, we give you thanks here this morning. Lord, we pray for those who may not have family this time of year. Maybe they're going through a hard time. Maybe this is a time of, see, a time of the year that, that's hard, difficult to get through because they've lost a loved one in the past. Lord, I pray that you would surround them with your love and your care, that you'd remind them of your goodness toward them, that you would be there with them to offer that presence. And Father, we just thank you for today. We pray you'd bless our time of fellowship after the service as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.